Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to this episode of Tech Cars Machines. My name is Ali Tabibian. That has not changed. Neither has the fact that I'm with GTK Partners. And as always, also, you can find more about me and the firm via the links in the episode notes. With this episode, we're starting a number of interviews with executives at key suppliers to the global automotive industry. The phrase tier one suppliers that you'll hear us use during this episode refers to the suppliers that sell directly to the car companies. Tier two suppliers sell components and subcomponents to the tier ones and tier threes sell raw materials to the tier twos. The tier one suppliers are the ones that are responsible for making sure that all the parts and the systems that they're delivering, uh, including those from the non-automobile guys like Intel and NVIDIA, which are the subject of these uh, podcast series occasionally, to ensure that all the parts from all these people are automobile grade. And that means that they can stand up to the heat, the vibration, and the lifetime supply requirements that are reasonably unique to the automotive industry. As our listeners know, we don't mess around here at TCM. When we start a thematic sequence, boy, we start it big. In this and the next episode, we're bringing you executives from two of the largest five suppliers to the automobile industry in the world. First, today, it will be Magna, and next uh, episode will be with ZF. That's spelled ZF, but ZF is a German company, and that's why it's pronounced the way it is. Magna International, headquartered in Canada, and ZF, headquartered in Germany, are, as I mentioned, two of the top five, and the other three include Continental and Bosch, also from Germany, and Denso from Japan. What's interesting is if you look at the list of top automobile suppliers, the first U.S. names are in positions number eight and number 21. Yes, my American friends, we're not number one when it comes to automobile supply. Generally, in terms of the revenue breakdown of these suppliers, you'll notice that about half their revenues tend to come from their home region. So, for example, with Magna, about half its revenues come from North America, and the rest is divided in uh, between the two other major regions for automobile suppliers, and that tends to, tends to be Europe, mainly Germany and France, as well as Asia, mainly Japan and China. Also interesting when you look at the list of top 100 suppliers, and we'll try to put a link to them uh, in the episode notes, is that you wouldn't recognize any of the names unless you were part of the industry or somehow familiar with the industry. There are a few names actually that would catch your eye, but that's only because they're part of a larger, better known conglomerate like a Panasonic, a Hitachi, or a Samsung. And that's really kind of surprising because these companies are huge. The top entities, like our guests Magna and ZF, have about 40 to $50 billion of annual revenues each. Number 100 on the list has revenues of $1.4 billion. When I was looking at this list, I did some back-of-the-envelope calculation, and I came to about $1 trillion of revenues. There are probably around 30,000 parts on average in the internal combustion engine vehicle, and uh, everything from the screws on up, for the most part, have to meet specific requirements for the automobile world. When you look at the vendor list, you'll see phrases like the following define what their business is about. And I'm just going to read a few of those for you. Powertrain solutions, chassis systems, steering systems, advanced driver assistance, transmission, braking, seating, wiring harnesses, infotainment. And while none of these names will be surprising to you, just by reading them out, you can kind of imagine how many major components and systems need to go into an automobile to make it work. Today, we're with the largest automotive supplier in North America, Magna International. And our guest 
is Swami Kotagiri, who is the chief technical officer, as well as, unusually, the president of Magna's Power and Vision Division. And what's interesting about the Power and Vision Division responsibility that Swami has is that it includes the products that Tech Cars Machines listeners love to hear about, radars, cameras, and then the suite of software that brings together this sensing and delivers insight to uh, the automobile manufacturer to do something interesting with that automobile. One of the great pleasures of my career, as well as doing this podcast series, and I really mean this sincerely, is the people I get to sit down with. I've really been so fortunate to have been with many, many accomplished individuals, and those uh, accomplishments are clear. Just look at uh, Swami's uh, LinkedIn profile, which we'll link into. Their accomplishments may be clear, but one of the great pleasures of my interactions with them is that they're also frequently just great human beings, very warm, and also with extraordinary personal stories, and maybe those two are somehow connected. You'll hear and sense all of this in my interview with Swami, so let's get to it. Tech, cars, machines. Subscribe here or at gtkpartners.com. Welcome, listeners. We're here in Troy, Michigan, just outside of Detroit, with Swami Kotagiri, who has been very kind enough to take this time uh, to bring you his insights, which are very vast on uh, the world of uh, automotive supply. Swami's the chief technology officer, as well as the president of uh, Magna's powertrain business, which, if I'm not mistaken, Swami, also includes most of the technology portfolio in that of the four divisions of, uh, of Magna. First of all, uh, it's a pleasure to be on your podcast, and thanks for giving the opportunity. I, I wouldn't categorize it as much to say this is the only tech uh, part of Magna. I think this addresses some of the key pillars that have been often discussed in the automotive industry today, which is the electrification, the autonomy, uh, and the connectivity. But overall, if you look at the Magna product portfolio, I would say we are addressing the larger picture of mobility as a whole. Great. Thank you. Swami, as I was getting ready for the podcast and reviewing some of the public collateral, it was pretty interesting how almost anything, much of the collateral about the company in the last year has been about the renegotiation of NAFTA. Maybe using that as an indication of how global uh, Magna is, give us a sense for the scope of the operations, where you are, what you do. Uh, as a company, and then uh, I know the listeners are always interested on the personal side as well. What brought you to the world of automotive and Magna in particular? Uh, Magna is a phenomenal company in many aspects. Uh, It's a global from the perspective that it's in 29 different countries, over 170,000 people, about 40 billion in revenue per year, uh, and continues to grow. Uh, If you look back into the history of 60 years, you know, from a Magna life growth story. I think one of the other interesting aspects of Magna is it touches or interfaces with many products in a vehicle. You know, we have the uh, structural systems, whether it be metal or non-metal, pretty much actually material agnostic, being able to do uh, different structural and non-structural systems in a, in a vehicle. Uh, we do seats, all types of seats. From the power and vision segment that you talked about really consists of the powertrain, which is the driveline and the transmission systems. We are talking of Magna Electronics, which addresses 
all the sensors, the compute, the software, and the algorithm, which actually provide uh, different features, whether it be adaptive cruise control, AEB, uh, automated valet parking, and so on and so forth for all levels of autonomy, and also provide what I call the software and the brains and the ECUs of the world for electrified components, whether it's an e-latch or augmented display in a mirror or a transmission control unit or a driveline unit and so on and so forth. Then we also have a division that deals actually and you know through the entire value stream for inside-outside mirrors, mechatronics, which is all the closure systems, uh, as well as lighting both uh, you know, tail lamps as well as headlamps. And if you take it one step forward, which I think is unique from many aspects, Magna has what we call the full vehicle assembly uh, in our style division, uh, which contract manufactures vehicles for OEMs in addition to participating or working along with OEMs in complete vehicle engineering. So if you look at the broad portfolio of Magna, uh, we are touching many aspects of the vehicle. So it's just not only global in what it engineers, manufactures, but it's got a very broad perspective in the automotive industry. Excellent. If I'm not mistaken, I think uh, some BMW 5 Series variants are made by Magna. Do I have that? Do I have that right? Yeah, you do have that right. We make a certain volume of the BMW 5 Series in our division, the vehicle assembly division, Magnus Tire in Graz, Austria. So we have the capability there roughly to make about 200,000 vehicles a year. It has a very long and rich history of making different types of vehicles. We've been making the Mercedes G-Wagon for over 35 years. If you're interested in the famous Aston Martin that was used in the James Bond movies, (laughs) that was made in our facility. A lot of the Chrysler vehicles produced for Europe in Europe uh, were also made in that facility. Uh, we just finished last year the Mini Pace, uh, Paceman, Countryman, which was also out of that facility. So there's a long, rich heritage of full vehicle assembly from that uh, location. Great. Thank you for that. And that's one of the reasons why we're very excited to, to be here, because that understanding of, if you will, the full, full stack of the vehicle, everything that goes into the vehicle, being able to produce it, we find is really quite interesting when you do get into talking, as we will later, in autonomy and electrification. When you have that ability to deliver the whole, then you can make a series of decisions about what the components should look like that's about making the whole better, as opposed to a particular view from a particular supplier. And I think that's a very, very interesting uh, as we get through it, especially when we get to autonomy and the issues of form factor, user interface and all that, that I know is a big part of what you're already delivering. Uh, Swami, how uh, did you wind up in the automotive industry? What, what brought you here? What excited you? What got you in in the first place? I did my bachelor's in mechanical engineering from India, worked for a couple of years as an industrial engineer, and then decided to pursue further studies. And uh, in 93 first of January, I ended up in Oklahoma State University, talking to a professor there for the last three months before that, and, you know, various set of circumstances, and I found some really interesting project on uh, uh, materials in different uh, aluminum alloys and so on, and presto, there I was in Stillwater, Oklahoma, doing my master's in mechanical engineering. So I spent my two years there specializing, I shouldn't say specializing, more focused on the Uh, material side of things, uh, as well as the uh, structural mechanics piece of it. 
came to Dayton, Ohio, looking for a job, and Detroit was not too far away. And through my job search, I uh, ended up at General Motors as a, a structural engineer doing finite element analysis on you know, vehicle bodies and frames, doing durability analysis, noise vibration handling, you know, safety crash analysis, and so on. And Magno was the supplier of the chassis for the truck program at that point of time. And then I came across Magna and in 1998 ended up joining Magna and I've been here since then. You've traveled a long way since the uh, $40, I think, that you had in your pocket. Yeah, that's one interesting story. You know, as I was going through the process, some of it was uh, called serendipitous courage, (laughs) Uh, not knowing what I was getting into. Uh, And some of it was just looking for a better opportunity. And, um, you know, as I went through the process of learning how interesting the master's program was, uh, I did not really want to depend too much on anything. And at the same time, I did not want to uh, create anxiety for my parents. Uh, At that point of time, by explaining to them the risk I was going to take, I don't know whether you call it courage or uh, something else, (laughs) but it, it worked out in the end. It's it's a great story. You know, I I share a little bit of it as well. And um, when I look back, it's such a relief not to have a lot of choice. There's there are very few things you know you have to do. You don't have a choice, and you go do them. You know, and it's it's uh, it's cathartic. Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. It's funny and feels great when you look back at it. Uh, But at that time, it was not that funny. (laughs) When I was going through the process, the, the funny story was I came to came through Dallas. And as I landed in Dallas, I had the connection to go to Oklahoma City, and they had a snowstorm in Oklahoma, which was not very common. And I, I was coming from India. I had not seen snow before that time. And there I was with, uh, you know, uh, the $400 that was left. So the story is I, I converted enough Indian rupees that I had a total of $3,000 in that time. And $2,600 was a certified check to the university because that was the first semester fees. Welcome to America. Welcome to America. <laughs> it's all tuition. Uh, and then I had the 400 which I thought was good, you know, to cover me for the first month or two. And I was sharing an apartment with, um, you know, two, three other students, actually. And as, as I realized, that was about $260 for the first month to cover the room rent and, you know, sharing expenses and so on and so forth. So $140 was a big buffer in my mind at that time, not very well planned. But since the person who was supposed to come receive me was not there uh, because he couldn't make it because of the snowstorm. So I ended up taking a limousine service. It was a phenomenal service, but it cost me 100 bucks. So that's how I ended up with the 40 bucks in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So an early start in the world of transportation. Absolutely. <laughs> early exposure <laughs> yes. to really what... Um, and, and actually, you know what? That's a really interesting uh, segue here. It was an amazing vehicle, that, that aircraft that brought you here. And then in the midst of a snowstorm, the kind that 200 years ago would have been utterly impassable, there's still a vehicle... In the, in the shape of an automobile that managed to pick you up and take you where you were going. Talk about changing the course of humanity uh, with what those vehicles can do, uh, what those two transportation modes have, uh, have done. Currently, when people look at the automotive market, ACES comes up a lot. There's uh, autonomy, connectivity, electrification, sharing. 
in your mind, how much more can this world of uh, transportation, either in the four categories that I just mentioned or whatever category you think is more important, whatever angle you th- you'd like to speak it up, how will the transportation industry change the lives of what is certainly a growing and probably an aging population in most places? How, how will it change the most? From my perspective, mobility is uh, a simple definition of trying to move people or goods from point A to point B. The important aspect is how do you do it in a way that is efficient, affordable, sustainable, and maybe at least to my age group, how do you still keep it exciting, right? So as you talked about it, whether the mode of transportation is by air, by water, on land, it's gone through a significant change, you know, just as an industry by itself. But I think what's really become interesting over the last 10 years is how much it is impacted by what's happening in other domains, right? You, you touched on some of the key aspects, which is electrification, uh, autonomy of different levels, connectivity. All of this actually are influenced by what's happening in the power storage and power generation sensing, right? Uh, a lot of it is also influenced by legislative and regulatory requirements, right? Uh, macro trends of urbanization, how do you address the last mile, first mile, you know, how do you manage movement of people and goods in a uh, high-density urban, you know, locations? A lot of these are starting to impact the industry, right? So, for example, when you talk about electrification, it's largely impacted by legislation. Uh, like if you look at a fleet level from an OEM perspective, they're looking how do you manage uh, CO2 emissions uh, at a fleet level. In certain other regions, like in China, they're looking for air quality, right? And obviously, certain uh, demographic uh, is looking at, you know, addressing, doing my share in terms of keeping the environmental uh, sustainability for the future. So there is certain many aspects that actually come together in driving a trend. So that's, that's electrification, right? Uh, if you look at it from terms of autonomy, uh, it's comfort convenience, uh, it's safety, it's uh, better utilization of an asset uh, when you get to a full autonomy. It's better utilization of land, right? Congestion, how do you reduce congestion? So it's not easy to pinpoint one key aspect that drives any of these things. But in the end, if you take all of this, you're changing the entire landscape of mobility, right? The last part of the S that you talked about, which is shared, again, addresses all of this to say that if you had a car that could drive by itself, and if you had a car that was electric, uh, which means, as an example, in the future sometime, I can demand the car to come so it doesn't you know, have the deadhead, right? So it's not just going from point A to B. It can be at a location where it's comfortable and convenient when you want it, it's available. You're addressing the need uh, in some cities where you're saying, you know, if you're not zero emission, you don't want to have a vehicle coming in. What if the powertrain or the vehicle, whatever medium uh, it is, has the ability to be zero emission in city centers, but be able to switch over to something else when it goes beyond in the transitional time? When the battery technology and the infrastructure and the range anxiety all go away, it could be all electric, right? So there's a lot of these things that are driving, but all ultimately lead to what I was saying. 
you know, from a consumer perspective, you want to be able to get to point A to point B that in a safe way, in a comfortable and convenient way. But you should have the option to be exciting when you need it, right? I mean, I, I would like to be driven when you're getting from here to the airport on a Friday afternoon. But on a Saturday or Sunday on a windy road, I don't mind taking the wheel. So I think there is the, this optionality that is required, and that's what is making you know, the current landscape so exciting, right? Absolutely. Thank you. Let me um, ask you this. You've certainly got a uh, very experienced, uh, a lot of experience, long tenure in the automotive industry and especially in the, in the tier one supplier uh, segment. Has it ever been that as many things are changing uh, in the industry as, uh, as we have today? Do we, is it really a special time from that perspective or is that really just what everybody thinks of their own time, you know, whenever it may be, that it's somehow different? I think if you look at it in the context of things, I think we're definitely on a little bit of a logarithmic scale. <laughs> it's an exponential growth than just being linear. Uh, like I said before, I think that is largely influenced by the information sharing and the ability to connect the dots of the progress made in different domains. Uh, the way you are able to compute and how fast you can compute and how much uh, you can and at the latency at which you can do has made some of the things possible today, right? For example, a lane keeper, lane assist, or a, or a maneuver, you know, like an AB wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago, right? If you didn't have the compute capability, if you didn't have the software that we're talking about. So I think it's the, the biggest impact that's happening right now is because of the confluence of everything coming together, right? Yeah, maybe I'm a little bit biased, but I would definitely like to think we have the more interesting times. <laughs> it, it certainly feels like it from a practitioner in the space. I'm not obviously on the inside of these companies, but as a practitioner, as somebody who studies this space, it does seem like more than actually even other segments that are being influenced by all of these, uh, all of these technologies. Just the fact that an average vehicle is a $35,000 vehicle and is an um, important purchase for people. There's a lot more that you can do to it and a lot more that, that people will tolerate in terms of its customization and, and, and segmentation of what it offers them. That just makes it a really exciting platform really, to deploy uh, all these technologies. And one of the key things where you mentioned is car as a platform. I think it's a platform of technologies in so many ways, right? Think of electrical, mechanical, hydraulic, software. I mean, think of a discipline in engineering or science. It finds application in this. And it's just, I mean, think about it. Like you said, at $35,000, a product that has to be reliable for 15-year time period, roughly, uh, from an automotive uh, industry, right? Lot, you know, a lot of the people don't realize the complexity involved there, right? Of the different circumstances and conditions in which this product has to live, right? From that minus twenty, storm, minus right? thirty degrees in the snowstorms, for a person who leaves in a vehicle for two months at some place and comes back and starts and wants to be ready to go in the next one minute. For us to be able to say that we are making this product for the next five years, but we have to provide the pipeline for spare parts for the 10 years after, there is a lot of these things that people don't realize what it takes to make one and keep one uh, running, right? I think the robustness and the reliability that is required in this product that we as consumers expect is 
be an orders of magnitude higher than what you see, right, uh, in most of other products. I mean, there is some things, obviously, like airplanes and, you know, things like that. But for $35,000, what you expect from this product is amazing. And we don't realize that or think about it on an everyday basis. It is, uh, it is wondrous. Just in the world of combustion engine, how much work has to go into containing that explosion, essentially, and protecting you from the vibration and the noise and the heat and all that, that, that then drives, uh, drives the vehicle along is really just astonishing Absolutely. what goes into it. And we make millions of them, right? And if you look at the person we put behind the wheel of all of these phenomenal That's machines, right. That's right. we don't expect too much from the person sitting behind, right? That's a good point. So. That's a good point. So, Swami, when there's a lot of technology interaction between the automotive world and, uh, and obviously the various fields of technology that you mentioned, one of the interesting things about that is the way a company like Magna is reacting to and incorporating uh, these technologies into its workflow. And if I just look at your, um, let's say the way you do your partnerships or what you choose to develop yourself, it's really interesting to look at partnering with a main mobility or, a, or an Innovis or an investment in Lyft or delivering your own platform and deciding how much of it you're going to deliver and how much of the OEM finishes off that experience. Tell us a little bit about how that world is developing, how that's changed, how you decide what you want to deliver, what you want to partner, what you want to own, uh, and when you want to invest. I think from a mobility perspective, as we talked, we are looking at the uh, overall value stream of the ecosystem going forward. And, and I think it's going to be, it's emerging and nobody can pinpoint exactly what it is going to be five, 10 years from now. But we believe it's going to be a hybrid model, uh, at least in the near to midterm when I say that for the next 10 years. What I mean by that is uh, you're going to have a certain amount of personal ownership, but you're also going to have consumers using mobility as a service, right? Depending upon the circumstance and the use case that you have, which really means you, you are changing the entire ecosystem of insurance based on usage, transaction of a vehicle, like, I know I drive the vehicle from point A to point B, but I don't need it from, you know, X AM to, you know, Y PM, but I don't want to be giving my car keys to somebody, right? But the asset could be used during that time frame by somebody else, either for personal use or for doing chores or transportation of goods and so on and so forth. So I think there is going to be a, a mix of different business cases as well as different use cases that are uh, being demanded by the the consumers. We are looking at this overall, right? So the innovation doesn't is not constrained only to the product. It is going to the product, the process, the material, uh, how do you deal with the information, and even business models that you can come up with. So we have to look at it from a very broad perspective. So Magna has a a very rich heritage of 60 years of bringing many products to commercial scale uh, first in the market. But we are now also looking at uh, there are certain products that are going to change based on technological developments in a different field. We talked about, for example, in chips or sensors. Even in our factories, uh, we actually looked at robotic technology that is used in the medical industry for surgery, right? And our thought was if the dexterity of the robotic end-of-arm tooling is good enough for surgery, 
how do I effectively use this for certain assembly operations or pick and place? I'm not underestimating uh, the cycle times and the reliability that you need in automotive, but that's a question to ask. So we always say, what is the question you're asking and are you asking the right question? So you can't start looking in the right domain. Uh, One good example I always talk about is, you know, when I started my career, right, we always talked about when we did crash analysis on a vehicle, you know, injury numbers and HIC numbers and looking at constraints, the fundamental question at that point of time we were asking as an industry is how do you keep the driver and the passenger safe? The underlying premise is there is an accident. But if the question changes to how do I prevent an accident, you're looking for a different solution. For example, now is you know, how do I start the car? You know, how do I sense it? You know, what do I take? So I think a lot depends on what question you're asking, right? We try to apply that approach through the entire organization, whether it is the material or the process or the business model. We ask all our divisions, and and I don't think it's a one-man show or a one-team show. So there are 170,000 people working, and the question to ask is, what is the most painful thing that you wish you could change? Right, And it could be a person working on an assembly cell who could come back and say, I wish this could be done differently which actually brings up a question. And, uh, you know, my, one of my favorite quotes is from Einstein where he says, if you have, you know, a problem, try defining the problem and understanding it for 95% of the time. Most probably, if you define it well, you will find a solution, right? So that's how we are approaching it. And we also call what, in our organization, we call it problem statements, is how well can you define a problem without making it too automotive-specific, right? So that it is understandable to a larger audience. For example, we do a process called hot stamping. We look at dyes, and we are looking fundamentally for a material that has a high thermal conductivity, but has enough toughness to handle a part that comes in at 850 degrees centigrade. But if you ask an automotive person, you know, when I was working on this technology myself, we were looking for high wear rate dye material. Doesn't mean a whole lot for a professor sitting in a university or a student. But if I go and say I'm looking for a material with a thermal conductivity of X and with a Wicker's hardness of so much, it doesn't have to be automotive. It could be in some other industry, right? It's the same thing we apply to sensors, for example, right? You're not trying to specify a lens or a chip specification or whatever. That's how we started looking at a a radar. The Icon radar that we ended up doing started off with that question is, if I have to have a reliable system combined with other sensors like camera, what would I like to have? And we said, what if I can have a digital imaging possible with a radar And if I have a range that is far, let's say I'm going at 120 kilometers per hour and I have to do A, B, and I need to have redundancy, one is camera, what's the other one? What's the other sensor? And we said, if that sensor had a range of 300 meters with a vertical resolution of, you know, less than one degree with a field of view of 150. So we kind of wrote the specification as a 
desire and then you know worked on you know the how and the what the first question is why am i doing this technology i think that applies pretty much across our whole innovation approach to the next step now once you define it you don't have to be doing all of it yourself right there is things happening on the outside so once this problem definition is there uh, we look work with vcs uh, we look at research institutions we look inside the organization we look at you know other domains or other industries uh, and and we go there and work with them and all kinds of models are possible right so that's kind of how we are looking at it broadly to try address both sides one is the evolutionary next step of taking the product to the next you know generation but also disrupting what we have to see what's the next you know quantum leap that's a very very interesting thank you so if i could just divide it maybe in coarsely not as obviously not as nicely as you did there's the out in portion of it which has kind of a scouting function almost to it what could be out there that might be useful to us and then secondarily there's the in out version define the problem but also be aggressive in casting a wide net tell people what you want done and then not over constrain what how you'd like the answer to come back and see see what uh, uh what that net captures i think it's absolutely important to keep your you know view really broad and it depends on which part of the cycle you are in the in the development right so when we're defining a problem and looking at it it's a very wide net right uh but we also have a very call it a thorough diligence process you know from a fundamental science perspective to say you know does this technology or an idea or whatever that we have in front of us does it hold water and that that's a discipline approach now don't stop an idea look at the idea but put it through its paces very quickly and we call it fail fast and fail cheap so the the funnel is very broad and wide in the beginning but it gets narrow quick as you go through the different phases you know going through so i think you got to get to the focus part once you say that okay this is the technology this is good because once you're committed to a program in an automotive industry or to a program you know you need a lot of focus at that point so that's where the engineering discipline the ability to scale uh, a concept to making millions of these things with the robustness and reliability that comes to play and you know for us that's a big value that we bring to the table and a lot of the startups that have worked with us have found that to be really useful and the oems kind of look at us and say we like the idea but we also see the strength of magna we's launched many programs before to say that they're going to stand behind it and get it done right so it's kind of a symbiotic relationship between us and the startups there uh, that gives them ch- the chance to work with you know a large organization to magna i mean i hate to use the word large you know the one of the key things uh, from a magna that i like and which keeps me going every day Uh, i i characterize magna really as a large startup i mean i've done several roles in magna from a research engineer to a finite element analysis engineer to testing and validation to you know release uh, product release and so on if you have an idea and if you have a sane business case th- there is no box around you right and it it's kind of the inherent dna of a of a startup 
right? It's just that we're a large startup. Right. <laughs> yeah, you have to do things on a different scale, but exactly. it's the same. You have to be just as quick, essentially. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned the OEMs there. One of the interesting things, if I just look at your partnerships, let's say, is that there are sometimes are the people you'd expect, like BMW, on autonomy. And sometimes they're with the, uh, sort of the next step away from the manufacturer of the vehicle, in this case, Lyft. Now, I know Lyft has its own um, autonomous vehicle development program, but tell us a little bit about um, how that's maybe a little different from what would normally happen at a tier one supplier environment, which it was pretty clear you were selling to the vehicle manufacturer as opposed to the uh, tech-enabled uh, service provider, essentially, which is what a, what a Lyft is. Uh, what's in it for both sides to cross that uh, line a little bit? You know, the, the cooperation between Lyft and Magna was fundamentally addressing the L4, L5 ecosystem, right? From our viewpoint, there is a huge market from uh, L1 to L3, right? If you look at the features that go into making the different levels of autonomy, in spite of all the discussions and all the talk, we are in still single digits in terms of penetration. So there is a significant market to be had. But you have to have a roadmap how to get to level four and level five towards full autonomy. So I I think there is a lot of lessons learned from L4 and L5 that you apply in L1 to three. So that is one aspect of it. And I think the engineering discipline, the release, the automotive requirements, we call, we use the word very often, auto-qualification of technologies. That is something that we've done over and over again. But from the software perspective and almost the existential need for Lyft uh, to be able to replace the uh, driver with a full autonomy, I think is a great symbiotic relationship for us. Right? That's how we looked at it, going back to we're just trying to see overall mobility, where it is going, and how do we play a role. Right? So they have the need, almost like I said, an existential need to get there, and they can push that. And how do we take this in a way that is pragmatic, realistic, robust, and reliable? We can bring that to the table. Right? So it, it's, again, useful to them. It's useful to us. So we thought that was a great way to take it forward rather than everybody try to do things on their own. From a BMW perspective, you talked about it, or any of our OEMs, uh, we continue to work with them on the roadmaps uh, because it's touching both sides, right? On one hand, we get to see a wide variety of architectures of what the OEMs uh, are looking for and therefore gives us a, call it a bird's eye view of where the industry is going. And we can develop what we call the building blocks, uh, let me give you an example. Uh, when you talk about a autonomous system, there is the sensor suite, there is the, call it the domain controller or the compute, uh, there is the software. If you break it down, uh, they are the building blocks. The specifications that are to one OEM might be a little bit different than the other, but if I have the right base foundation, then can I get to one to the other application very easily. I think the, the trick is in figuring out what those building blocks are and how do you create that building blocks. Swami, you've been very uh, kind with your time and I want to be respectful of it. I was thinking of asking you maybe to take the Max 4 platform and describe it a little bit as sort of consolidating everything uh, that we've uh, discussed. I think inherently it'll also answer the question of which parts you think are near term 
in, uh, in application versus none. Do you think that's a good way to, uh, to go uh, as the next question? Or is there something else that we put on the list here that you would prefer to? No, sure, we can answer that. I think from a fundamental philosophy, again, going back to the building blocks, I think our intent or objective in the MAX4 uh, was to show that we can get to level four autonomy in urban location without taking away the pragmatic use of the vehicle. If you look at the MAX 4, it still looks like a production vehicle. It has a... And it's a Jeep in this case, I exactly. think. Is it? Right, right, right. And, and for it, our listeners, uh, Swami shows off the vehicle in the, uh, the banner photo of his LinkedIn profile. So go there and take a look. We'll link to your profile in our uh, episode. Absolutely. I think we're very proud of it. I mean, if you open the trunk, if you go inside, it's like a regular vehicle. And going back to my building blocks, we wanted to demonstrate the capability of the camera systems, the radar, the LIDAR, the domain controller, obviously the software that goes along with it, which we think is really the building blocks that enable uh, the the level four driving. And the same, actually we apply the same philosophy to electrification, right? We look at electrification as a whole, and we believe that the high voltage and the 48 volt architecture is going to play a significant role and more than 50% of the vehicles will be hybrid in some way, shape or form, whether it's micro, mild, PHEV, 48 volt, high voltage. And we try to create the building blocks uh, like we have the transfer case, we have the e-machine, we have the inverter, we have the dual clutch transmission. A different ways of combining this can address one of the 50 powertrain architectures that is out there, right? So that's how we look at it. So MAX4 was a way to demonstrate the different technologies that Magna has as a holistic system and what it means to the our customer, which is the OEM, or to the consumer. And it was, uh, if I recall correctly, two things were also there. One was a strong um, emphasis on the user experience or the user interface. And the second was that it's designed for, uh, for upgradability. Uh, is that correct? And is that, is that an interesting uh, point to flush for the listeners as well? Uh, absolutely. I think, uh, as we said, the industry is going through a transformative change. And it's not crystallized exactly what the direction is. So one of the most important things in this kind of a flux time is to be able to uh, come up with system architectures that are flexible both up and down. Uh, as an example, in the Max4, the domain controller architecture is chip agnostic. We can use an Intel or a Renesis or something else. The architecture is uh, done in such a way that you can go to level four, but you also can go to level two. So reconfigurability and flexibility and modularity is the key to survive in these times right now. Let me ask a silly question. Is it reconfigurable in the field? In other words... A consumer vehicle is deployed. There are a few million of out, uh, out there. And um, I think there's an example of this actually with Tesla where they said, okay, well, if the current NVIDIA processor isn't enough for full autonomy, we'll upgrade everyone. Is it upgradable in that sense or is it mainly within the realm of design inside the OEM that is highly configurable? I, I think it's more the latter uh, for certain aspects of what I was trying to explain in the domain controller. So it's not a remelt report every time. So if you have an architecture that's reconfigurable and modular, you can build off the same platform for different variants of the vehicle, and the changeover is much simpler. That is one aspect of it. But on a feature side, it can be done on the field, like we're talking about. So 
how do you architect the vehicle with the right power level? You know, if you have that thought process and the vision to look forward the next five years, eight years, and 10 years, then certain aspects of that would be, call it upgradable or reconfigurable in the field. That's right. That's right. Well, that's, that's beautiful because uh, there are a lot of people who have views on, as we talked about, geo-limited or a closed field applications. A lot of people would be able to use that, the entire platform today for a particular use case that isn't necessarily you know, making the next Ford F50, F-150, or the next uh, Camry uh, uh, on top of this platform. Right? That's, um, that's great. Uh, Swami, anything else that we should have covered or um, you'd like to touch on? Honestly, it's a call out to anybody who's in this field or want to come in that field. Automotive is an amazing field. If uh, Whether you're a mathematician, you're a physicist, you're an electrical engineer, you're a, a data analyst, think of a field. I mean, there's no better place to be to try your skills than automotive industry, especially Magna. Especially Magna. And it's interesting, too, The uh, we had... Uh, something we were we were doing in the world of connectivity, and a few of the entities, a few of the people involved, uh, were asking me, "What's a good location with respect to um, in the automotive world to work on connectivity-related issues?" And that, depending on where you think a lot of the processing will happen, you know, most of it at the edge or in the core, there's some really interesting networking issues that have to get resolved. Absolutely, like we talked about, there is not a fundamental field of science that doesn't apply here. Uh, and it's still in a flux. So if you have a great idea and come with it, most probably the industry will look at it. <laughs> <laughs> great. Thank you so much. It's been, a real, uh, it's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. My pleasure. Anytime. Great. Bye-bye.